Sometimes the way you describe cultural practices, they come with a lot of bias too from the authors, you know, again, coming back to the idea of whiteness. And I do think it's important to revisit those things and especially after what you have been going through, after the Me Too movement, after Black Lives Matter, you know, things have changed quite a bit for us. I mean, for us, especially white people. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Eduardo Viana da Silva discusses the development of his open e-textbook for Portuguese and offers strategies for teachers interested in creating and sharing open materials. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are joined by Eduardo Viana da Silva from the University of Washington, who will give a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series this week on developing an open and inclusionary language textbook for Portuguese. You get the exclusive sneak peek of his talk here, which you can catch tomorrow live or watch later on our website at lrc.cornell.edu. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Eduardo. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So, Eduardo, before we jump into the topic, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and your path with languages? So, I was, I was born in the south of Brazil, in Joinville. That's the city where I grew up. And I always wanted to learn English and, and Spanish and just mm -hmm. learn other languages and learn about other cultures. Yeah. So, for me, learning English was a way of, you know, travel and going to other places. Sure. And and I got into a job overseas at, at Park City, in Park City, Utah, mm -hmm. in a resort. And that was a winter job. So I went there and then I just kept coming back to the same ski resort, Deer Valley. Um, I was busing tables, actually. It was a hard <laughs> job. But that's how I actually learned English, because mm -hmm. I was learning on the job. Wow. And There was a lot of people that spoke Spanish, so I practiced my portuñol, as we say in Brazil, you know, a mix of Portuguese and, and Espanol. Um, so, yeah, so I got to practice in real life. And, and it's a long story, but I eventually ended up at Brigham Young University mm -hmm. as a non-LDS, um, not a member of their church. But that's where I got my master's in Portuguese, and I taught Portuguese for returned missionaries at mm -hmm. BYU for about three years. I also worked at the University of Utah as a lecturer, Salt Lake Community College. Um, I got a certificate in teaching English as a second language, mm -hmm. which I thought it was crazy, and I still think it's crazy. But thanks <laughs> to that certificate, I immigrated to Canada. And I actually taught English in Canada, if you can believe that, <laughs> for four years in a private school. Uh -huh. I had those four years of everyday teaching, like lower levels, right? And then eventually I went to, came back to the U.S. and went to see Santa Barbara, uh, where I got my Ph.D. in Portuguese literature and also in applied linguistics. There, there was an emphasis in applied linguistics and a certificate in college and university teaching. So I just did all. I got everything. Nice. Um, yeah, so that's a short version. 
Wonderful. So you have developed an e-textbook for first-year Portuguese classes. How Mm. and why did you come up with this idea, and what is the process for creating an open textbook? So I've been teaching language classes, Portuguese language classes, for a long time, you know, since 2003. So that's about 18 years, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Mostly as a TA, most of my experience. Just in the past six years, I've been teaching full-time at the University of Washington. But throughout the years, I kept developing materials and and things to make the textbooks more, um, or to make the class activities more interactive. Mm -hmm. Um, And got to a point that I just had so much stuff that I had done that I thought, well, I might as well put together and come up with an idea and make this available. Um, At some point, I had them on, on a week space that I developed with the University of Florida. But I thought, you know, creating a... Weak space is not there anymore, but yeah. um, creating uh, a textbook could be more relevant and more useful for uh, language teachers in Portuguese. And having it online, even better, because it's free, everybody can access um, and use it in class. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. So in your process of designing or creating this textbook, one of your goals was to be inclusionary in the materials that you developed. You wanted to reflect the collaboration and feedback from Portuguese speakers of several economic and cultural backgrounds. Can you speak a little bit more to the notions of openness in this context? So what I did is that I traveled to Brazil about three three years ago. This is before COVID. And I spent a summer there, I spent three months, and I visited two universities, uh, the University of the State of Sao Paulo, UNESP, in the Araraquara campus, mm-hmm. and the University for the State of Minas Gerais, Universidade Federal de Minas Gerais. And in those two institutions, I got a bunch of videos with students, and from the dialogues from those videos that were not really rehearsed, they were mm-hmm. I gave them a prompt to talk about where they lived or what they were studying. So from those dialogues, I started creating the material for the chapters. And then I also recorded some people, um, like in a restaurant, ordering a drink. Um, and I still want to do more of those things. And sure. with those recordings, I also created more, uh, more of the material. So that was part of the collaboration. The other part was with my students at the University of Washington, mm-hmm. doing focus groups and testing out the material with them. Um, when I started, I just had a document, a Word document that I would print out yeah. and give them a binder in the beginning of the quarter. That was the textbook. <laughs> and, you know, super high tech. Uh, and then <laughs> we would work together and just, you know, they would give me feedback and, and tell me things that were not working, find typos that are sure. you know, so hard. There's so many typos everywhere. Um, and, and then I started creating the material that way. Um, but talking about the inclusion, that's the collaboration part. And there are also other teachers who have sure. given the material and give me feedback too, especially Carlos Pio at UPenn and Ellen Oliveira at University of Southern California. Mm-hmm. They have been great, great helpers for me. Like, they help me a lot. Um, but to, on the inclusion part, I, I'm gay, and, you know, that's part of why I wanted to get out of Brazil in, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So 
be a little bit free. And, um, and I thought that, you know, having a little bit of LGBTQ in the, in the textbook would be sure. important, uh, have people of color represented in the textbook. Mm-hmm. I also thought it would be important. Um, I'm white, white in Brazil, right? But I come from a working family, a working class family. Um, and, and I thought that a lot of the textbooks that you have out there, uh, in Portuguese, that's what I can talk about, uh, the authors are normally white mm-hmm. and, and they are high middle class mm-hmm. or yep. uh, you know, highly educated, yep. um, mostly straight people too. So uh, you do get a voice that it comes from that group. You know, mm-hmm. when I try to create dialogues for the textbook, it's never how people really talk. Mm-hmm. If I create a dialogue for a restaurant, that's not like a restaurant attendant talks. Um, so I learned that very fast in the beginning of the textbook as well. So I know it can sound a little bit of a cliche of giving voice sometimes, but I think that's really what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Get people to record their voice, what they're sure. saying, and use that literally yeah. as the base for the textbook. Mm-hmm. So you said that you recorded some video segments are there other pieces other than the videos and some of the um, the audio materials that you know that you have developed over the the years that are particularly suitable for this online format of your textbook? Yeah, it was a surprise, I think, to all of us, right, that you had to be teaching online. That yeah. was <laughs> ready for, but uh, coincidentally, having this material was easier in some ways because the students could just access the, the textbook mm-hmm. right there. Um, and a lot of students feel comfortable not having a physical copy of it. Um, so before COVID, we were recording with a group of students from the UW, from Brazil. We are recording the chapters, kind of doing an audio audiobook almost. Mm-hmm. They're recording everything that was in the chapter, the directions, the list of vocabulary, um, with the exception of the dialogues that were already recorded. Sure. And I made sure that I got people from different regions of Brazil, so different accents as well. Mm-hmm. And then as I started writing more the textbook, I, I focused one chapter on Mozambique, one chapter on Angola. Mm-hmm. So my future, my idea for the future is actually to get people from Angola and get people from Mozambique to record some of those dialogues mm-hmm to recreate maybe the dialogues to be more authentic mm-hmm. because after COVID, I just couldn't do what I was doing. Of course. Um, but that's the beauty of the open textbook. You can go back, yeah. things, add things, take, move things out, you know, take things out. Uh, and that's what I've been doing. I, I'm planning on doing. Mm-hmm. Great. We're interested in your perspective Why is it important to reconsider and critically reflect on teaching materials we may have taught with for a long time? Sure, yeah, and I I can relate to that because I've been teaching with the same textbooks, a couple of textbooks for Portuguese, different textbooks for a long, long time. And and I think you do get used to it. And and sometimes it can be a little bit of a rabbit hole, like you just... (laughs) got so used to it, you have all the activities, uh, so it can be a little bit of a hassle to change things around. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, 
textbooks can age really well. Uh, really well, no. The opposite. It's a lot of times they don't age really yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want to say. They don't age really well. Um, and you can see with the name of, you know, movie stars and actors mm-hmm. yep. that students now, you know, I mentioned Oprah and they were like, who's Oprah? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea who, sure. who Oprah is. I get that from a lot of, um, especially male students, they just go like, who's Oprah? And <laughs> so things like that happen a lot in textbooks, right? They, yeah. age, they don't age well. Um, sometimes cultural aspects, the way you describe cultural practices, uh, they come with a lot of bias too from the authors, you know, again, coming back to the idea of whiteness. And, um, and I do think it's important to revisit those things and especially after what you have been going through, after the Me Too movement, after Black Lives Matter, you know, things have changed quite a bit for us. Um, I mean, for us, especially white people, and I keep coming back to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some people would not agree with me, but uh, that's the way I see it. Uh, so it's important to be critical. It's important to review what you're doing, uh, rethink your own concepts about culture and how you understand your positionality in the world, yeah. uh, both in the United States, in my case, as an immigrant from Brazil with a lot of privilege from being uh, someone who is not a person of color in Brazil, right? Mm-hmm. Um, someone that had the chance of getting an American visa and coming sure. to the U.S. in the first place and going to school uh, in the United States. Um, and I want to make sure that the textbook doesn't have just my voice and just not my perspective on cultural practices. And that's why I think doing a lot of listening to other people is very important. What feedback have you received so far from the students that you've used the textbook with and possibly from other colleagues who either collaborated with you or I don't know if other colleagues have also taught with the with the textbook already? Yeah, yeah I have some people using it at University of Hawaii, uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. UC is also using it. And I believe UPenn might, it's going to use it in the fall in one of their classes. Um, in California, in Florida too. So one of the things I heard is that uh, because the material is not, um, it is based on on how people talk, everyday Portuguese. Yeah. They hear their students using more of everyday Portuguese in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So that is represented a lot of the times in contractions. The way we say, instead of saying, I'm, I'll go to school, we say, eu vou para, eu say, eu vou pra. So that pra, that's the para, you know, it's a lot in a lot of the texts, it's there. Yeah. Um, a lot of times Brazilians don't pronounce the S's in the plurals, uh, don't pronounce the R's in the infinitive form of verbs. Mm-hmm. So they say, instead of say vamos, let's go, they say vamos, right? Vamos. And they start naturally picking up those, those ways of saying things. Um, which I think it's great because that's mm-hmm. how 90% of Brazilians speak anyways. Yeah. Um, so that, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is there is not a lot of explanation, grammar explanation in it. So we use another open source, that's the Portuguese para principiantes, 
that's a Portuguese textbook from University of Wisconsin at Madison. Mm-hmm. So that we use as a support material for for the grammar explanations. Okay. And we have been incorporating another OER from University of Texas at Austin. Yeah. Um, that's the Brazil Pod. So we have been incorporating podcasts to our you know throughout the textbook. Nice. And I think the smart thing about it, it's you know it is an open textbook, and I'm using other open textbooks and open resources. Yeah to complement what I don't want to do, that's writing a grammar textbook. That's not my idea. And I don't feel even qualified to do it. Uh, <laughs> and I don't want to do it, right? I want to just write a textbook about everyday Portuguese and how we yeah. speak. Mm. Uh, that can come with some criticism from people who are more uh, prescriptive, like in the way you know language is. They're like, well, that's how people should talk. Mm-hmm. And that's not how I see it. I think yeah. we should talk as... We talk in our communities, and the way I speak English, in my case, is the way I speak English, and it's fine for me. Yeah. The way that people speak Portuguese in a shanty town in Brazil, in a favela, mm-hmm. or comunidade, as we say there too, it's their way of communicating, you know, and, and there is nothing less or more about sure. that. Mm-hmm. And, and that you can see in a lot of cultural representations like rap, or, you know, um, funky from Rio, right? Uh, the funk music from Rio. Yeah. And, and that goes, you know, speaking Portuguese means a lot of things for different people. Um, or from Portuguese, Africa, Mozambique, Angola, or if you are from Brazil, and which part of Brazil, that it's completely different, right? So, um, yeah. What's one piece of advice you would give a colleague who is considering developing open materials? I would say to listen to your students first, to see what they want, like what what they need the language for, right? So in my case, our students really want to learn Portuguese to speak. They want to go to Brazil and they want to talk. Someone will do some research as well, uh, which is another set of skills, right? Um, so listen to the students, collaborate with people, um, and don't, I wouldn't start too big. I would start in small bites because it can be quite overwhelming to, to develop, uh, depending on the, you know, you can have an OER that's a whole textbook, or you can have an OER that's something different, right? Smaller, mm-hmm. maybe. But I would, yeah, just keep calm and carry on. <laughs> Isn't that As what we say. all need to do these days? <laughs> what other choice do we have? Panic. Yeah. <laughs> Revolution. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's doable. I think it's very doable. And, you know, for some people it means different things. So it could be a manual for a class, could be something that the students put together, perhaps, right? Uh, an introduction of the United States, of their area of the United States in that language, or you can create different things. I have one idea that I would like to throw out there for people looking for OERs. Please. And and I've been thinking of that for the past two years, and I haven't had the time to do it. But I think that could work well with any language. Creating a set of readings. uh, I was thinking of doing that with Portuguese and doing that in collaboration with a couple of colleagues, maybe a colleague from... Mozambique, a colleague from Portugal, hmm. um, and a colleague from Brazil, and then we could 
select cultural texts about cultural practices in the countries um, and create a textbook, not a textbook, but a reading material. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could be interviews with people, could be uh, short texts that writers could give to us, maybe for the OER, right? Yeah. Um, black writers, indigenous writers, or intellectuals, or everyday people, sure. too, right? Um, so that's one thing that I have been thinking about it mm -hmm. in the future, but that is the idea if anybody wants to do it. There we go. I yeah. love it. Or if anybody is interested specifically in Portuguese, yeah, let can. us know. Connect with Eduardo on mm. this. Yeah, I have a couple of colleagues that might do it with me, but it's just, yeah, we are all too busy right now. Yeah, no, that's how it goes. Yeah. So, Eduardo, where can our listeners learn more about your open textbook? So, it is online. Um, the name is Bachipapu, and it's available to, through Pressbooks. Pressbooks, it's a platform uh, that the University of Washington is, you know, has it uh, as a member. Mm -hmm. And it's through that platform that the book's available. Great. And we'll put the link in the show notes, too, so our listeners can directly click on it. Well, this has been great. Before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share your favorite word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn. Let's hear it. Okay. I think one word I like is janela. It means window in Portuguese. Spells with J, janela. And I like it, well... I like it because my friend Audrey likes it. And that's <laughs> part of it. It's a friend from BYU. She thought if she had a girl, she'd give her the name Janela. Yeah. Because <laughs> she thinks it's a beautiful name. I think it's a beautiful name too. It's very open the way you, you say it. Lots of open vowels. Mm -hmm. Janela. And I find very powerful and meaningful too. You know, a window to opportunities, mm -hmm. a window to other cultures, to other ways of being. So Janela is my word. Excellent. I like it a lot. Okay. Well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Eduardo. Thank you so much. Obrigado. Next week, we will reflect with Florencia Henshaw on lessons learned from the pandemic and talk about potential aspirations for post-pandemic language teaching. Until then... Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.